This is an excerpt from Teachings on Love by Thich Nhat Hanh. The second aspect of true love is karuna. Is that right? The intention and capacity to relieve and transform suffering and lighten sorrows. Karuna is usually translated as compassion, but that is not exactly correct. Compassion is composed of calm, together with, and passion, to suffer. But we do not need to suffer to remove suffering from another person. Doctors, for instance, can relieve their patient's suffering without experiencing the same disease themselves. If we suffer too much, we may be crushed and unable to help. Still, until we find a better word, let us use compassion to translate karuna. To develop compassion in ourselves, we need to practice mindful breathing, deep listening, and deep looking. The Lotus Sutra describes one who practices looking with the eyes of compassion and listening deeply to the cries of the world. Compassion contains deep concern. You know the other person is suffering, so you sit close to her. You are in deep communication, deep communion with her, and that alone brings some relief. One compassionate word, action, or thought can reduce another person's suffering and bring him joy. One word can give comfort and confidence, destroy doubt, help someone avoid a mistake, reconcile a conflict, or open the door to liberation. One action can save another person's life or help him take advantage of a rare opportunity. One thought can do the same, because one thought always leads to words and actions. With compassion in our heart, every thought, word, and deed can bring about a miracle. With, when I was a novice, I could not understand why, if the world is filled with suffering, the Buddha has such a beautiful smile. Why isn't he disturbed by all that suffering? Later, I discovered that the Buddha has enough understanding, calm, and strength. That is why the suffering does not overwhelm him. He is able to smile through suffering because he knows how to take care of it and to help transform it. We need to be aware of the suffering, but retain our clarity, calmness, and strength so we can transform the situation. The oceans of tears cannot drown us, drown us if karuna is there. That is why the Buddha's smile is possible. It's a different sermon today than the one that I envisioned last month when I put this in the newsletter. It's a different sermon today than the one that I sat down to start writing earlier this week. In fact, it's from handwritten notes instead of the normal typewritten things because it has to be a different sermon today. This weekend, Donna Renfro, our Director of Religious Education, and I um, spent the Friday and Saturday at Fourth Universalist Church in New York City um, leading a, a conference for youth from throughout the New York metropolitan area, teaching them about spirituality and worship, teaching them um, both about spirituality, about experiencing spirituality and spiritual practices, and then about how to, to put together meaningful worship for their youth groups and for their congregations as well. And one of the things that we taught them in that workshop was that spirituality is not just an internal thing. Spirituality is not just 
a practice that we do for ourselves, with ourselves, by ourselves. Spirituality has to be engaged, engaged with the world around us. You don't just breathe in love and call it a day. You have to breathe out peace. You don't just breathe in goodness, you have to breathe out mercy. Our spirituality in whatever form it takes, our connection to something greater than ourselves, can't just be taking goodness in to ourselves. It has to be spreading goodness out to the world. And if we spread that goodness out enough, eventually that spirituality becomes religion. Religion, you see, as I've said a few times I know, comes from the Latin roots, which mean to bind together something which is broken. And so, when spirituality is engaged with the world, when spirituality responds to the suffering in our world, it becomes a religious response, a response which seeks to bind together the brokenness that is around us. It becomes a response of compassion. Ram Das once wrote, Compassion is the basis of all truthful relationship. It means being present with love for ourselves and for all life, including animals, fish, birds, and trees. He wrote, Compassion is bringing our deepest truth into our actions, no matter how much the world seems to resist, because that is ultimately what we have to give the world and each other. The religious response to suffering in the world is to seek healing and wholeness. And that response requires us to feel connections with others. It requires us to spend time trying to put ourselves in another's place. It requires us to speak out when we witness injustice, when we witness suffering, when we see something that is wrong, even if, in the case of those children we heard about earlier, speaking out puts us in a place that is risky or dangerous. It's tempting. It's tempting to make the religious response a personal one, or even an interpersonal one. It's tempting to keep compassion at the level of our companions, those with whom we feel close enough to sit down and break bread, those with whom we have a deep personal relationship. It's tempting to keep the circle of compassion around us tight and narrow, restricted to the people that we know, restricted to the people we already know we love. It's tempting because dealing with a wider circle, pushing that circle wider and making it larger, dealing with institutions, dealing with the larger brokenness in our society is messy. The Reverend Dr. King knew that. He knew it firsthand. He knew that it was messy, and he knew that it was hard to convince people to deal with that mess. 
But brokenness transcends the personal. And I think, um, I believe very strongly, I'll take that back, I believe very strongly that there is a religious call, a moral call, an ethical and theological call to expand our circle of compassion as widely as we possibly can. Dr. King was not satisfied to see compassion, his compassion, limited to his companions, the small circle of people around him. He was not satisfied even to simply denounce injustice in Selma or in Atlanta or in Birmingham. Dr. King insisted that the struggles of individuals were connected to the struggles of society. He wasn't even satisfied only looking at one struggle, the struggle of segregation. The speech that he gave in 1967 that I read from earlier was not about segregation anymore. By 1967, the Civil Rights Act had been passed. In 1967, he was talking about poverty. He was talking about war. He was talking about the United States perpetuating injustice, physical and economic, in countries around the world. He was expanding his circle of compassion wider, wider still than the risky one that he had spent years, years struggling with. He saw that the brokenness of prejudice and discrimination were connected to the brokenness of racism, to the brokenness of classism, to the brokenness that comes from violence of all sorts, to the brokenness and systemic injustice that was all around him. And he would have been no kind of religious leader at all if he didn't wade into the messy waters of society's brokenness, into the messy waters of systems of oppression, into sometimes the fetid sewer waters of politics. It's tempting to keep ourselves out of all that mess. It's tempting to want to keep our religious life, to want to keep our spiritual practice, to want to keep ourselves clean and pristine, unsullied by the nastiness and division of things like politics in our world. It's really tempting because it's messy, it's nasty, it's smelly, it's icky work. And then we look at the world around us today. We live in an era of unprecedented environmental degradation. We live in an era when children are dying of asthma because of the particulates in the atmosphere. We live in an era when island nations in the Pacific are making plans to move their entire populations to other parts of the world because they know that their entire, their entire nation will be underwater in a matter of years. We live in an era when cities in the lowlands of Europe are, are building systems so that soon the entire city can float because they know they are soon to be inundated with waters from the sea. And yet, one of the first bills introduced in the new Congress that started meeting this week was a bill to weaken the Clean Air Act and to weaken the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate American industry and our culpability for what's going on in our world. It's messy, the work of politics. 
but it's necessary to go there. We live in an era of discrimination. In 1996, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act with a strong bipartisan vote, uh, an act that enshrined anti-gay and lesbian discrimination into federal law in this country. And there were a lot of people who voted for it reluctantly, people on both sides of the aisle voted for it reluctantly. And most of those people, they said, okay, we're going to vote for this, this bill, and in return, we are going to introduce the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. We are going to introduce a bill so that um, there will be federal protection against being fired from your job because of your sexual orientation and gender identity. And that bill was famously introduced by New York State's two senators at the time, a Democrat and a Republican, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Alphonse D'Amato. They said, we'll vote for this Defense of Marriage Act, but we also want employment non-discrimination as well. That was 1996. The 111th Congress adjourned just before Christmas and it was the eighth Congress in a row to fail to even vote on the, defense, on the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. Eight Congresses, it's been introduced. Eight Congresses, it has failed to even come up for a vote. It was promised in 1996. 1996, we're still waiting for it. It's messy to wade into the world of politics, but sometimes it's necessary. It's necessary to say, you promised this. It's the right thing to do. It's time to do it. We live in a world of violence. If you've not been paying attention to the news recently, you might have been shocked by the candle that I lit yesterday. I was leading a conference on worship when I got a text message from my partner who pays attention to the news all the time. Those of you who don't know him, uh, he's an editor at the New York Times, so he, he gets paid to pay attention to the news. And he sent me a text message knowing that I would want to know that a gunman opened fire at a Meet Your Congresswoman rally in Tucson, Arizona, um, fatally wounding eight people, including a federal judge and a nine-year-old girl who was there because she'd just been elected to her school council and she wanted to meet her congresswoman, a nine-year-old. Gabrielle Giffords, the representative from Tucson, is still in critical condition. She was shot in the head. The bullet went through her brain. She's still alive by some miracle and hanging on to that life. But there are eight people and counting this morning who were not just from one senseless act of violence in our world. And it's tempting to just say, this was a man who um, was not right, who did something wrong, who acted alone. It's tempting to say that. And if we expand our circle of compassion wide enough, we understand that that is not the truth. We live in a society in which violence is the norm. We live in a society in which it is normal for political actors in our political sphere to put up a map on the web of Congress people they are targeting for defeat with gun sites, crosshairs on their district. One of those districts with a gun site on it was Gabrielle Gifford's district in Tucson. And you can't do something like that and then claim that you are not partially responsible for what happened yesterday. 
We live in a society where the head of a major political party proclaimed before the November election that Speaker Nancy Pelosi should be put out before a firing squad. A firing squad, he said. He's the head of a major political party. And you can't say something like that and then not claim partial responsibility when people start opening fire on members of Congress that they disagree with. You just can't do something like that. We live in a society where a major party nominee for the Senate openly proclaimed in a political rally that she hoped it wouldn't take Second Amendment solutions to stop the tyranny of our government's health care law. Second Amendment solutions referring to the amendment of the Constitution that guarantees our right to bear arms in a well-regulated militia. You can't say that it might take firearms to solve a political problem and then not be partially responsible when someone uses firearms to solve a political problem. We live in a world where things like that happen. And if religious people, if religious people hunker down and only look within ourselves, if religious people keep our spirituality to ourselves, if all we're doing is breathing in the love, if all we're doing is breathing in goodness, if all we're doing is paying attention to what's in our heart and we're not breathing out the peace and breathing out the mercy and breathing out the justice, if that's all we're doing, then shame on us. Shame on us. Sometimes compassion really does mean to suffer with, especially when it means getting our pristine religious ideals dirty in the mess of the world. Some religions choose to absent themselves from that mess. They choose to focus on a world that does not exist that might one day come in the afterlife or when a savior appears on our earth. Those religions are not religions that deal with this world. I believe that that's a cop-out. Shame on them. Unitarian Universalists believe that it's a cop-out as well. We disagree on what comes next after we die. We disagree on what might one day come, savior or not. We disagree on that, but we all agree that we're here now. That when you shoot someone in the head, she bleeds. We all agree that there are things that we can do to push our circle of compassion wider, to breathe out love into this world, to create the society that we want to live in. Compassion calls us to see suffering in our world as a religious problem, a problem that demands us to address what needs to be bound back together again in our world. No matter how much the world seems to resist being bound back together, no matter how messy and uncomfortable it might get, no matter how much it might stink. Compassion calls us to a religious response that is beyond ourselves. Let us find the courage to answer that call to compassion.